Chapter Thirteen of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old English Gardens. I have not the antiquarian knowledge necessary to treat of old English gardens fully. What I have done is to turn over some well-known books, such as Amherst's History of Gardening in England and Seddon's Garden Craft, etc., and collect a few particulars likely to be interesting to unlearned persons who are fond of gardens. I should like to show as well as I can, in a small space, how English gardens before 1485, which in many ways marks the advent of a new age, differed from the gardens of our own time. We know very little of English gardens before the 13th century, but the names which have been handed down to us from that remote time tell us this at least, that a number of useful plants of foreign origin had been already introduced, and were popularly known by their Latin names, altered more or less to suit the taste of people who understood no Latin. The following are specimens of a much longer list given by Earl. Fabrifuga becomes Fabrifuge, and finally Feverfew, Lactuca, Lactus, and Lettuce, Napis, Nap, and Turnip, Petrocillinum, Petersilli, and Parsley. It seems fair to conclude that they who preserved the Latin names of many useful plants knew Latin themselves, and had much to do with gardens. Many of them were, no doubt, monks, who, during the Dark Ages, were not only gardeners, but the physicians, architects, scribes, and schoolmasters of the time. Here and there a plan of some old abbey grounds has come down to us, on which is marked an herbery in the midst of the cloister, an orchard or a vineyard. Herbery has been driven out by the vernacular yard, which also takes the form of guard and garth, and survives in garden, orchard, wortyard, vineyard, etc., Account books of the 14th century and later tell us some little, for instance, of the use of peas in pottage, or of beans and butter, of the grafting of hawthorn hedges, of the threshing out of mustard seed, of garlands of roses and woodruff, of spades, rakes, hoes, and garden rollers. Illuminated manuscripts now and then depict a walled garden, divided into rectangular beds by narrow gravel walks. In them holy men are meditating, or children working. Such pictures show us the arbors and fountains, the pleached walks and clipped trees, the turf banks and turf seats of the later Middle Ages. Favorite Flowers The English garden of the 14th or 15th century yielded many exotic flowers, besides English wildflowers, such as cowslips, foxglove, etc. We find the following named among many others, lilies, roses, gillyflowers or clove pinks, peonies, periwinkles, golds or marigolds, blue and yellow flags, or iris, hollyhocks, columbines, lavender. Vegetables. Garlic, leek, and onions were grown plentifully, as well as beans and peas, cabbages, beet, lettuce, cress, radishes, turnips, and carrots, parsnips, spinach, orach, pumpkins and cucumbers, mustard, etc. Kitchen herbs. Parsley, borage, avens, betony, patience, arumex, fennel, mint, saffron, sage, clary, coriander, anise, dill, hyssop, rue, dittany, smallage or wild celery, tansy, and thyme seem to have been frequent. Saffron was a favorite ingredient of a number of dishes. Drugs. Marigold, rosemary, henbane, whorehound, and valerian were much used in domestic medicine, besides many wild plants, most of which were quite inactive. Fruit trees. Several varieties of apples, costards, pearmains, etc., pears, 
warden, regule or St. Rule, sorrel, marten, perginet, etc., plums, bullies, damsons, etc., cherries, medlars, quinces, coins, mulberries, peaches, chestnuts, hazelnuts, great nuts or walnuts, and vines were usual. The vine was expected to yield eatable grapes and even wine in the southern and western counties, besides verjuice expressed from the unripe grapes. Strawberries were a favorite ground fruit. Gooseberries and raspberries seem to have been brought in from the wild country and cultivated in gardens as early as the time of Edward I, a great lover of gardens. The old English garden before the time of the Tudors lacked many of our most valued trees, roots, and flowers. The borders showed no lilacs, laburnums, larkspurs, Christmas roses, dahlias, or fuchsias. The kitchen garden, no potatoes, rhubarb, or currants. No botanical gardens existed anywhere, for the first were founded in Pisa and Padua in the 16th century, around 1545, while England did not possess one till near a century later, in Oxford, in 1632. Under the Tudors, all the useful arts made steady progress. Gardens became frequent, and some of them attained lordly proportions, as we see from Bacon's well-known essay. In the Netherlands, the development of horticulture was both more scientific and more rapid than in England. It was from Holland and Flanders that our forefathers learned how to raise better varieties of vegetables, fruit trees, and flowers, as well as bigger and more profitable breeds of oxen, sheep, and horses, how to keep sheep alive on roots instead of slaying them at Martinmas or starving them through the winter. Holland taught us the value of the so-called artificial grasses, and the possibility of a continual succession of crops. Nor did the improvements which we got from Holland concern agriculture and horticulture alone. Holland taught our forefathers navigation, banking, bookkeeping, and the use of machinery. Englishmen have shown that they too can do great things. Our railways and electric telegraphs, our colonies and our parliaments are the products of an energetic and thoughtful race but we do not follow up our discoveries with that minute attention to detail which certain other nations have shown. If we had been more docile, we might have learned yet more from Holland. Holland, by nature, the poorest country in the world, where, according to the old jest, men live abroad, a country drowned with water, and much of it below sea level, a country without rocks, hills, forests, or mines, teaches very distinctly that all the advantages of soil, climate, and mineral wealth are of small importance, in comparison with knowledge, industry, and method. The long succession of descriptive books which have done so much for English horticulture begins with the Great Herbal in 1516. Among the single benefactors who have enriched the gardens of Western Europe with flowers and trees unknown to medieval times, few deserve our gratitude more richly than Buspec, if it is true that we owe to him the lilac, the tulip, the syringa, the horse chestnut, and the sweet flag. It is hard to get conclusive proof of facts so remote, but besides the statement of Buspec himself that he sent the sweet flag and many other plants to his botanical correspondence, we have the acknowledgments of Mattioli and de Lecluse. Mattioli, in his commentaries, figures the horse chestnut and the lilac from branches sent by Buspec. De Lecluse is the authority for the packets of tulips received from Buspec, then living in Vienna, but still keeping up communications with Constantinople. The word tulip, as the dictionaries tell us, is Turkish or Persian and means a turban. Buspec, 1522-1592, was a Fleming and served long as ambassador from the emperor to the Turk. He is familiar in history as the describer from first-hand knowledge of the Sultan Suleiman and his Turks at the height of their power 
when they made Hungary into an Ottoman province and swept round the walls of Vienna. He has his place in literature, too, as a graphic and unaffected writer. Quote, On ne trouve point à l'air tant de fêtes historiques en si peu de discours. Unquote. A well-known jingling sentence in Bacon's essays has made his name familiar to many an English schoolboy. Busbeck was an unwearied collector. During his fatiguing and sometimes dangerous travels, it was his practice on reaching his lodging to inquire for old inscriptions or coins, and failing these for rare plants. Bernardine de Saint-Pierre proposed to call the lilac Busbeckia. Let us at least give a thought now and then to old Busbeck when lilacs make our shrubberies gay with their blooms. End of chapter 13